And now... Last year, it went tire off. Hey guys, this is Marco Mendoza from Dead Daisy. This is Tate Fletcher. Hi, this is Ivor Davies from My Town. This is John Karate. It's Rocktober on the Mojo Radio Show. Let's hear it. I knew all the dance moves. It just makes me feel good. How long has this Rocktober thing been going on? Great idea. Now, now, 365 days later. Whoa, whoa, stop, stop it right there! We're ready to do it all again. Ready on the live, from the action on the camera. Welcome to Rocktober 2017 on the Mojo Radio Show. One days that will go down in history. Feels good to you, baby, Hi everybody and welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. Welcome aboard the Big Red Bus. We're heading north, due north, towards Rocktober. We're into week four. We're putting the pedal to the metal. We haven't backed off. We've got another cracking guest on the line. Some more music, some more giveaways in typical Rocktober fashion. What is Rocktober, you may ask? I hear you say. Back in the day when Robbo and I worked in commercial radio, Rocktober was where a radio station, and typically a rock station, would take the month of October, turn itself inside out with loads of giveaways and special guests, live performances, acoustics. Stuff would happen throughout the day, throughout the whole month that would make the month very special. We thought, well, because commercial radio have let it go, we'll bring it back. We're in now our third year of doing Rocktober, and I have to say, I think this year is our biggest and best. It sounds awesome, and the guy making it sound so good. Robbo, welcome to week four, Rocktober. How is it? It's going really well, mate. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I just had a thought, too. We've cranked it up for Rocktober. Maybe next month we could slow it down and, you know, go go all easy listening and call it Slovember. Slovember, or yeah, because Movember's done, so, yeah. uh, and I cannot grow a Mo for the life of me, so no, that's out. Neither can I. I'm lucky to grow hair on my legs. <laughs> the Mojo Radio Show. For week four of Rocktober, we have once again gone to an author. Uh, this is out of my bookcase. Another one of my favourite books of the last couple of years, the book was called Essentialism, and our guest is Greg McGowan. Now, why this book is so topical, if you've been on the bus for the last number of years on the Mojo Radio Show, you will know that we have had a little bit of a theme of minimalism, simplicity, cutting back, getting rid of the crap, getting rid of the stuff that's not important to get down to what really is important, the stuff that we can use, the essential stuff. 
that helps get our mojo working. And that is exactly the bullseye. That's the laser beam point of interest we have in Essentialism, a terrific book written by Greg McGowan. It's a bestseller. I rate it super highly. I was really excited when Greg returned my call to say, sure, I'll come on the show. I'll come on Rocktober and the Mojo Radio Show. Greg McGowan. Welcome, mate. Oh, it's so nice to be with you. Thank you. Now, I have been looking forward to speaking with you because I think your book is certainly one of my top books of the last couple of years that I I enjoyed but had a profound effect on how I go about doing stuff. When when people ask you what you do, Greg, how do you like to answer them? Well, I, I like to teach and write, and I never think about it as much more complicated than that. Uh, the, the subject of what I teach and write about is, has shifted over time as I've made observations based upon the people and companies I've worked with. Uh, but, but overall, it's as simple as that. So let's start with the, the writing that I saw of the book. Tell me, at the very core of essentialism, how would you describe it? The, the insight in the title. It's about the continual, perpetual, uh, even obsessive pursuit about what's most essential, what's really important. And then, therefore, the negotiation and elimination of the non-essential in our life and ultimately building a system that enthrones and, and protects those things that are most important and enables the execution of them to be as effortless as possible. This is essentialism. So if somebody buys into it, and I would recommend they read the book to get the full background, but somebody buys into this, Greg, and they say, I want to join the way of the essentialist, which is, which is how I've heard you term it before, Tell me where I start. Tell me, tell me a step-by-step process that right now they finish this podcast, grab a pen and paper. What do I do? Well, the three principles are to explore what's essential, eliminate what's not, execute. So those are the, those are the three overarching principles that we just mentioned. So what's the first thing to do? To explore what is essential. I recommend that what people do is that you know, they schedule a personal quarterly offsite. So that they bring back into their life uh, the space that has been unintentionally consumed by social media and smartphones and all the rest of it. So you, you put it back into your life and you do it strategically. Once every 90 days, take a full day and look at the big picture. <laughs> you know, what's gone right over the last 90 days and why does that matter to you? So you get really again to the essence of of what is essential to you from the successes of your life. And then looking forward over the next 90 days, okay, what's, what are the one or two really important things? Maybe what's the priority in your personal life or what's the priority in your professional life? And get it as clear as that. Of course, you'll do other things, but knowing what your true north is in each of those areas of your life will help you. Yeah, it's like the one decision that will make a thousand decisions over that quarter. And so I think if people do that, process once every 90 days, it's really hard to do that and not actually change the trajectory and the direction of your life. Am I exploring different categories of my world? Greg, are you suggesting that I look at work and health and family and community and fun? I mean, is that what you would normally recommend or is that what you've observed that people do this as an option is to sort of break it down? Because the reason I ask the question is I work with a lot of corporate executives and they just tend to have 
90% of their day, which I'll get to in a second, but 90% of their day is about the work thing. And if you say what's essential, that immediately go towards their work. Are you suggesting maybe we break that down? Well, I think that I think that what somebody needs to do, and you can do this as part of the ninety, you know, the personal quarterly offsite. But the really big question that is actually beyond anything I write about in essentialism. But as I try to grapple with this question of, look, how do you really practice this? And I've I've been grappling with it both because I'm teaching it to others, but also just in my own life, really wanting to double down on this strategy, not to just write about it, talk about it a bit and let it go and on to the next idea. No, I want to live my essential life. And, and in, the, in the journey, one of the questions I think that it's most helpful to ask is, look, what is, what is my 100-year vision for my life? And that number is important because it, it pushes us beyond the bounds of virtual death thinking, which is so it's so assumed that we don't even really think or realize we're thinking like that. That's just, that is normal. That's what people do if they're doing long-term thinking, it's birth till death. And it took me a long time to realize that one ought to go beyond those bounds. But it's so important because by doing it, you push yourself past the point of you being in the picture. And you ask yourself, what, what will remain afterwards? What contribution do I want to have left to my personal life, my children, grandchildren, and beyond. And then professionally, is there something that I want to build and believe that I could build that could last and extend that way as well? I think this is a simple uh, technique and tool and approach that can help to put in perspective all these different activities. Like you're saying, these executives that, that tend to assume that the way you would apply an idea like essentialism is to fit to work because that's the assumption they're already operating their lives by. The 100-year vision is an attempt at pushing past that thinking and challenging what really will matter, you know, in, in, in a much longer-term perspective. Do you think that creating a legacy like that, Greg, is something that changes the way we look at stuff? I mean, I've, I've never heard that spoken of before. But to me, that is where Elon Musk is working. He's, he's exactly in that space right now where he's thinking of the dreams he's got that are way past his own lifetime. But it seems to be around a legacy. Is that legacy part, because you're thinking of others, does it change our own framework of what we think is essential? Um, I, I think there's a, there's a few elements to this. I, I think that the, the word legacy for me is not my favorite word for, for what I'm trying to describe here because it really is to do with not thinking about self. And, and there's something, not always in, embedded in the word legacy, but there sort of is a sense of what will my legacy be to my grandchildren? What will my legacy be to, in the world? And actually, I think that to find what's essential, we really have to do quite a lot to eliminate self from the equation. You know, one of the things I, I, I think that's important is that, is that essentialism shouldn't be practiced as just, uh, you know, what do I really, really want? Although that's a perfectly good question to ask. I think it, it's a, it can be a very narrowing question and shifts us into a certain form of non-essentialism, which is the form that I don't write about much in the book, but I think is really relevant where someone's very focused but on the wrong thing. So. So instead of that, we're saying, look, let's, let's try and eliminate the ego 
and listen instead to, I think, the voice of clarity that we can tap into, we can hear, if we'll, if we'll get the loud voice of ego out of our lives, so that we can hear a quieter but more distinct and important you know, voice of guidance, for want of a better term, helping us shape what is the unique contribution that can be made and who can I really serve if it wasn't about me? It wasn't about, it just happened to want in this moment. And, and in this way, I think we shift from, a friend of mine uses this term and I love it. He says, he says we have to get out of the scared self uh, and into a sacred self. I really like that. And, and I think that's a distinction here where we're not just talking about traditional uh, westernized, modern, consumerist view of success. We're actually saying what's essential. Just because people today value it doesn't mean it's essential, doesn't mean it's important, doesn't mean we think it really matters in the long run. That essentialism is in that second category. It's about what really matters, not just what presently seems to be consuming our attention and the people around us. Yes, yeah, I think that's so interesting, Greg. If I, hearing what you've just said, I would believe that the ego is getting in the way and the ego is saying it's all essential. And there is a guy or girl heading to work this morning, sitting on a bus or a train, earbuds in, hearing it, they've got a to-do list in front of them of 150 things to do and it's all essential. It's all got to be done. Like I really couldn't do without any of that. It seems that the ego is getting in the way of working out what really is essential. For someone like that, how do they know, Greg? How do I know that of all these things, these things here unequivocally unequivocally, are the important essential things? Well, I think that I think you have to start with the counter-argument for a moment. So let's take that same person, 150 things, they're on the way to work and so on. Let's take the non-essentialist argument first, which would be, look, first of all, carry on. Keep doing that. In fact, it's working so well for you, double down on it. Add another 150 items. It's easy to do. I mean, spend a little time on social media, see what everyone else is doing that you're not doing, add that to your list. You know, brainstorm for a few hours and you'll add many, many more items of things that other people are doing and things that you've once thought of or things that you used to think were important. And just keep adding it and keep hammering along. You know, double down on it. If the strategy works, it should work if you double down on it. And, and of course, I, I'm playing in a sense that, you know, by, by putting the opposite, it, it, hoping to show how ludicrous this is. This doing everything popular now as a strategy, and, and I'm quite sincere about this part, if that's working for someone, they should carry on doing it. Ignore everything we're talking about and proceed. But on the basis that non-essentialism is fundamentally built on assumptions that are completely not accurate, based on, on, on assumptions that are, for want of a better term, a lie, then then we can't double down on it and build our lives on it because it will, it will not produce what it keeps promising to produce. You know, we, we have been, I think, victims of a great con. And ego, of course, will buy into that con because it wants 
it to be true that you can just do everything popular now and that will all work out. Then you don't have to make any sacrifices, any trade-offs. And if that were possible in the world, well, frankly, good, good for everyone that's true for. What I have experienced, what I've observed scientifically, um, methodically, is that that isn't what, that isn't the reality of our lives, of any of our lives. And so trade-offs are this inherent part of our lives. So the question ultimately becomes, do you want to make trade-offs based upon what, you know, based reactively? Meaning you just sort of get to the end of the year, the, 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 the decade, the, the life, and see what trade-offs were actually made. Or do you want to consciously look at that life and think about the trade-offs and use your imaginative creative abilities to look ahead and to imagine what will be essential in the long run and therefore which strategic smart trade-offs you can make now so that over the long run you are in alignment with the things that really matter, that are really satisfying, that will really make the greatest contribution. To me, that becomes the big decision of our lives. The trade-offs part must be hard for people to get their head around, Greg. I mean, we're taught that we can, or common philosophy would say that we can have everything, pursue it all, be more productive in your day, manage your time, get more into it, get more, have more. But for people to step back and go, actually, it's a matter of trade-offs, that must be quite challenging for people to go against the common belief of have more, be more, get more. Yes, I mean, I think it, it is challenging, but I, I receive when I'm working with people, almost no organ rejection at all. Because I think that smart, driven, capable people recognize something's not quite right. It's like the smartest, most observant people in the middle of the real estate bubble or towards the end of the real estate bubble, more to the point, can sense something's off. So even though there's evidence around to support keep on investing, keep on buying the fourth house and the fifth house with no money down. Even though there are people behaving in this way and no one's really saying you should not behave in this way, they can still sense. My wife's a good example of this. There's someone who can sense in the real estate bubble, no, we're not doing that. That's not wise. That doesn't feel right. That doesn't sense right. And I think a lot of smart and wise people can feel that. And so even if they're not yet, their behavior is not aligned with that insight yet, they can sense that they ought to be choosing a different path, even if they don't yet know what the path is. So when suddenly you name this this first path that we're most of us seem to be on, and then this alternative path, people are very willing to shift the conversation to the second path. In fact, when I'm doing keynotes with millions of very different conferences at different levels of, of CRI, at different countries, a very you know, diverse group of people, there's basically nobody after I'm like 15 minutes in, there's nobody saying, look, I don't, I don't, I don't buy it. And I don't want to be an essentialist. There's nobody doing that. People's entire question becomes, okay, how do you do it? Can it be done? And how? And that's because they can sense, I think, that the unsustainability of, of non-essentialism. So that's the experience with this. So people buy into it. They know they're on board with you, but there are so many people in every aspect of life who are just overwhelmed right now. 
and they're flat out keeping up. Where's the grey area? Why we get it, they finish the conference, they go away, a small percentage will do it and be able to stick with it. Why Why the grey area? Well, because, because well, for a few reasons. One, because the, the cultural norm of our time has, has invested immensely in non-essentialism. So it is brought into that assumption too. And so I think that if people leave, they'll be aware in a way they weren't before that there is, that, that they have made excessive choices thus far that they weren't even realizing they were making. You know, they've sort of been, it's all been hidden in plain sight. And so they leave with an awareness of, oh, there's, this is happening to me and there's an alternative path. But learning how to translate that over when everyone is still calling upon them to live as they were living is its own, is its own challenge. In fact, it's so countercultural. I, I mean, I, I think to become an essentialist, to choose this path is an act of quiet rebellion, uh, of, 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 of small revolution. But here's what I've learned. If you'd asked me that question, you know, the book came out three and a half years ago. If you'd asked me then, I don't know what I'd have said, but I'm not sure I would have had the same answers I have now. In fact, I know that's true because I still feel now just coming together with the breakthrough ideas, the practical pieces that must be built in order to actually live consistently in this way. Uh, and, and in fact, I am just currently experimenting with what I think is one of the absolutely most important practices to building an essentialist cadence into our lives so we can get to better sets of interest. It's funny because I reckon that people, people would get on board with you, Greg. I think you make a compelling argument and goodness knows there's a need for it. But they look at authors or people in the public eye or people who are leading the way in terms of performance and productivity and they look at their world thinking and believing it's perfect. So when they take on this essentialist lifestyle, when they have a day or a couple of days where they're not an essentialist, for whatever reason, they've been forced off the track, would it be true that people then go, oh, I failed? Like, I can't do this. Like, I'm not an essentialist because those, that day didn't work, that month didn't work. I'm not an essentialist. It's, it's not an exact perfect science, is it? No, absolutely not. And, and when somebody operates like that, they're basically bringing their non-essentialist mindset to the pursuit of becoming an essentialist. Because they're saying, oh, I have to become perfect at everything about essentialism now, that is itself almost the definition of the non-essentialist mindset. So we have to be careful that our pursuit of becoming an essentialist obeys essentialist principles and practices. So, for example, the metaphor I found most helpful is that you know, if, if, a, if a plane is going from you know, from California to Sydney, that plane will be off track ninety percent of the time. And that's that's like the fact, right? So the, the the point is is that it gets to where it's supposed to get to when it's supposed to get there because it keeps correcting its course. And that is exactly why the course is so important. 
uh, is because this is one major way four times a year to get back on track, to look at the big picture and so on. Now, that is necessary but insufficient. I've, I've been doing that for several years now. I've helped other people to do that for several years now. And I believe it makes a tremendous impact. At the, at the strategic level, it can, it can shift the direction of your life. It can help you to identify that you're in fact going in the wrong direction or that you're going in a direction that's worked before but no longer important. And so, so the question then becomes, if you do this every 90 days, what do you do to adjust at the micro level? So that you're quick, you're quicker to get back onto what things matter, and that's really where my head is at right now. And I think, I think I have a very simple uh, answer and insight to that. I think what you've just outlined for us, Greg, is really important because I think Robbo and I are on a plane from LA to Sydney because we are off track 90% of our day. <laughs> so I think what you just pointed out that we are, in fact, here in the studio, essentialists because we are uh, only 10%, if, if that, on track. Well, more to the point, 90% of the day, Gary's pushing the hostess call button to order another Dosecchi. That's the problem. Oh, good times, good times, <laughs> good times. I just want to I just want to connect the next piece because... Because I think it's so right. We have to be very patient with this process. This isn't like one more thing to do in your life. Essentially, it isn't one more thing. It's, it's the very work of your life. So, of course, you're not going to master the very work of your life in a day or an hour or a weekend or, or, or by reading essentialism or so on. No, this is, this is all to get us on to, and that's the language of the book, the disciplined pursuit of less but better. That's, that's an important phrase and idea. It's a disciplined pursuit. You've got to keep on coming back. You've got to keep on adjusting. And, and the thing that I really think is critical trade-off, critical shift is this, is to, is to get rid of your to-do list and instead to build a carefully curated checklist. This is, to me, to my mind, such a simple idea. And I said it's the smallest idea ever, but what a difference it can make. So first, what we almost all of us do is create to-do lists. And how we create those, almost all of us, almost all of the time, is we feel overwhelmed, so we write it all down. Yeah, oh my goodness, there's so much going on in my head right now, so many things I'm thinking about today, let me just list it all out, which is a perfectly sensible thing for us to do. But that practice I think is inherently reactive. You're just going, you know, well, it's all this stuff in my, all this noise in my head. I'm going to put all that noise on that page and then I'm going to, most of the time we don't even prioritize that list. We just start to cross off the items through the day. And that feels very satisfying to cross those items off and to make progress. Now, I don't think there's anything terrible about that, but I think the risk is that each day we're really just living without greater wisdom from the day before. We're not learning from living because we just keep on sending up the next set of reactive things, the next set of reactive things. We don't get the sense of being ahead in life. And things don't make it, don't bubble up to this frantic point that we put it on the list until really it's too late to have been focused on it. It's all of a sudden so terribly urgent. So the alternative is and it's just what I've now learned to believe is that it is difficult to overstate the, the power of this innocent-sounding uh, 
dumbfounded, carefully curated checklist. Because what it brings together is a few key insights. One is that really nothing has changed in a person's life or in a business until you've changed something in your daily routine, in things you do daily. So someone who says they're on some huge diet and they're on this thing and they're going to be on it for the next three weeks and this is going to change everything. In my, in my experience, they've changed nothing. That, you know, yes, they might get a temporary response, but they, that's so unsustainable to do the thing, to get the quick benefit, but then they go back to how they were before. And so nothing's really changed. It appears to change. It appears to be, but it actually undermines the, the, the morale for the future because it helps them to believe that nothing really does change, even when you go so big and try so hard. No, better would be to add a carefully curated, selected, you might say, some, one of the, the, the micro habits that I've, learned and found very helpful uh, as, it, as it pertains to diet because that's the subject we're ripping on uh, is is to write down everything you eat and that's it. No big diet you just write down everything you eat every day and you do that every day or you just watch what happens when you've done that for a week, for a month, for a year for about over five years you find that this, this tiny change means that over it doesn't even take years to be honest but over Certainly over years, you, you, you're totally eating differently or thoughtfully eating less but better, which of course, as we know, is the great design principle of essentialism, less but better. And that's because of that tiny change in the things you do often. And so I mean, quite literally, people should build, you know, in, in whatever app they use or, or on paper but, but, or in Word or something, you say, here are the, here are the daily checklist items that I've carefully selected and thoughtfully connected to these long-term goals, this 100-year vision, your, your 90-day goals from the personal quarterly offsite, all of that, and, and see if you can track those tiny changes so that each day when you wake up, you're not just going, oh, my goodness, i got everything on my mind and I have no idea what to do. You just go, I'm playing the game. I'm going to go through these items I've previously decided to, to focus on and work through them a little bit every day and see how the cumulative impact of, of, of routinizing small but essential things have over time. I mean, the cumulative impact is so much greater than any, any attempt to massively hit heavily hard any single item on that list. That's what I've learned, and I believe it's such a critical insight to actually executing on the practices and promises of essentialism. It's gold. Gold, Robert. Gold. Rocktober gold. Cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. You mentioned priorities then, Greg. Where Have we gone wrong with priorities? Have we lost the essence of what a priority is? Well, it's funny because when I ask people, I, I, I put to people that the, that the word priority came into the English language in the 1400s. And, and, and I'll ask them, well, what did... What did it mean then? And everybody goes silent. <laughs> and then I'll put to them that it's actually the same as the definition is today. So it's not, it's not like a trick question. And, and so someone will say, well, I guess it means the prior thing, the very first thing. And I say, yeah, right, exactly. That's what it meant then. That's what it means now. 
But what didn't exist 500 years ago was the word priorities. At least according to Peter Drucker, that word didn't come into the English lexicon until the 1800s, 1900s. So that was when somebody pluralized the term. And, 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 and I'm still looking for like a good, honest definition of what that word means. Yeah. Because thinking pluralizing it, the very idea of pluralizing it has, has undermined the definition itself. I mean, how can you have very, very many, very first, before all other things, things? It's an honor. And yet, most people listening to this today have been to a meeting where someone said, with no sense of irony at all, you know, here are our 20 priorities. <laughs> yeah, how true. And then, when they're talking about it, they add to this, without anyone forcing them to say it, they say, well, and none of them are more important or less important than any other. It entirely undermining the root word we're talking about and the principle. Now, we're not talking about linguistics for the sake of it. The words, meaning of words matter. I totally believe that. And, and so what we mean here is, is that we actually ought to know in any given moment what, what the ideal is, is to know what's important now, to know what that win is. You know, what's important now has a nice acronym, WIN. Is what, what's the win right now? And, and I think a lot of the time we don't know the answer to that. But as we build personal quarterly offsite, as we build this very long-term vision, translate 90-day goals, as we build a checklist that really supports achieving that very long vision in these tiny micro steps, micro habits, micro adjustments, as we do that, uh, I believe that we will we will feel less lost and that we will feel less motion sickness and a better sense of momentum. That's my experience with doing it. And, and I really believe it can have um, not just a life-changing insight, which I hope the book can produce. Of course, it doesn't for everyone. I'm not trying to be presumptuous about it. But I, I know that it can, at its best, have, have a, a shift of thinking. But in addition to that, we need to have a shift in our skill set and in the tool sets we use. And that's what we're talking about today in this conversation. These are some of the additional adjustments that we can make to really guide our life and tilt the, 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 the path of our life towards these things that matter. Greg, I've heard you talk about our planning fallacies. And you've said that as humans, we're really bad at estimating how long things will take. And we tend to underestimate. How does that play into being an essentialist? Well, first, this, this planning fallacy is a brain heuristic, well observed and established in the scientific community, that, that we just routinely underestimate how long a task or project will take. But you don't even have to rely upon them. We can do it as a quick test, which is you just think about all the projects and initiatives you've ever been involved with and divide them into two lists. And in the first list is how many times did a project or initiative take longer than you expected, more resources, more energy, and so on? And how many times did it take less resources, less time, and less energy than you anticipated or expected? And, and then say, well, what's the ratio? 
And for most people, it's, it's at least nine to one. Where despite being smart, driven, capable, despite having a lot of experience in living, we constantly think or allow ourselves to think or allow ourselves to believe this thing will take less time, less energy. I have a friend who once said to me, and I took it as a, as a joke at the time, or a little bit in jest. He said, you've got to take every time estimate that anyone ever makes to you and multiply it by pi. And I thought, well, that's an exaggeration. But I've actually found that more often than not, that is just true. That, that, that most of the time, it, we're talking like three times the, 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 the resources you expect will actually be required. So, now to your question. What does that look like in the journey towards being an essentialist? Well, at the big picture level, what it says is that however much time we think we have left in our whole lives, we have less. So if we would cut down the amount of time we think we have remaining in a, in, to, you know, to a third, so, so it's 30% of what we think we have left, how would that shape how we would select a couple more things before we let you go. Um, tell me about your, your learning practices. Tell me, as an essentialist, how do you go about reading, listening, and learning, taking notes and absorbing? What's the essentialist approach to learning? Well, I've been very inspired uh, by paying attention to what the great leaders and thinkers uh, spent their time reading. So what we find is that the most influential and inspiring leaders seem to have a, a deep interest in deep learning, meaning to go, meaning to read the classics. Uh, and when you read about some of the you know, John Adams and uh, Thomas Jefferson, you know, obviously important figures in the United States, but also in the way that they've influenced other movements in the world. Um, they were reading the classics and often in original Latin and Greek. So while I'm not reading original Latin and Greek, I do believe, and not just believe, I, I feel uh, I actually read classic literature, you know, whether that's actually scripture that's lasted thousands of years or whether it's, um, whether it's other classics. Uh, you, know, you, can, you can imagine the kinds of authors, but uh, the, the, the works that have lasted the test of time, that they have lasted 100 years and are therefore not as... Um, are not as consumed with the whims of now. So they, they, they tend to be based in principles that are both timely and timeless. One can think of uh, Le Miserable or, um, or War and Peace uh, or Anna Karenina or Crime and Punishment or any of these classics that help us to uh, to see 
principles that have outlasted the the, the popularity uh, blips that come and go and don't matter. And so I've actually found myself reading more of those books, more of that classic literature in as I begin what I assume will be the second half of my life than I did in the first half. And, and I think it's I think it is likely that I will read a great deal more of that going forward than I than I did again in the last twenty, thirty years. So that's one that's one distinct idea. Uh, so, so trading off time on the news. Uh, yeah, I found myself. Uh, I had to admit that I had become more of a news junkie than I wanted to. That I wanted to be. Uh, in fact, anyone listening can do this. They can go on their phone, uh, and they can they can see. Certainly, the iPhone has um, uh, collects that data each day and each week. How many hours you spent on different apps and. And I realized I'd spent more time on the news app than, than seemed reasonable. And I suddenly said, okay, well, I'm going to trade that off. I'm going to spend a lot less time there and put that time instead on listening to audio books. But these, again, carefully curated a selection of books that I think these, these will challenge me with wisdom that has lasted. I think that's, that's one answer to your question. That's a nice line, isn't it? Challenge myself with wisdom that's lasted the times. That's... Um... That's very profound. Is there, is there an area of your world, Greg, that you are currently working on to improve? Well, I I tend to think that there are two kinds of people in the world. There are people who are lost, and um, and then there are people who know they are lost. And I I I compliment myself in in hoping and aspiring to be in the second category. And so and so I I just want to admit it faster. And there's there's no great honor or accomplishment in not admitting it. In in presenting an image to the world that you have all the answers and that you know just what you're doing. But really you're just copying what everyone else is doing and you're trying to outcompete the decisions that other people are already making, there's nothing inspired or inspiring about that. And so for me, it's admitting this. It's just facing it again and again. And and then with that, what I hope is a growing humility that, that, that comes out of that, admitting that to yourself. You then can start to make adjustments uh, or, or all the time again, towards these same practices that we're describing. Uh, and so, you know, so for me, for me, I, I, I would, I could trace back, not just, you said, I think, the last 100 days or 200 days, I think you said that, but maybe I'm yeah, yeah. forgetting what you said. But, no, I did, yep. but yeah. if I, but if I think about, um, if I go back a little further, I can get all the way back to about a year ago when I was, just beginning to work on the next book. And I was finally giving way in a sense because the agent who I love is ready for the next book and keeps following up and the publisher is ready. Uh, and of course, I want to write. I, uh, I want to teach and write. That, that, that's central to what I do and what I want to do. But when I went through the personal quarterly offsite, when I did that deep 
exploration, I found that I, I did not feel that it was right or essential to do the next book. That didn't feel right. It felt logical. It felt like what every other author does. It felt like what, is, what was being expected, but it didn't feel right. And what I felt I should do instead, in fact, was to defy logic, in my view, which was to do, was to somehow pursue building a, a television show that explored the, the, the more global elements of essentialism. That, that's what I felt like maybe was the right thing to do. But I had no background for that, no reason to be pursuing that or to believe in that. And so the idea of trading off a known and appealing path, which is better paid this time than with essentialism, even so, if there's all the reasons to do it, actually, the the clarity that you know that came to me was this other path. So it was just within days of that that Steve Harvey, that you know very successful comedian and television uh, host and home television host here uh, in the U.S., uh, read Essentialism and blogged about it saying, this book changed my life because the trade-off had already been made not to do the book and to pursue television. Instead, suddenly I could see that opportunity in a way I think I would just would have been invisible to me otherwise. I didn't even notice it. Ended up kicking off a friendship and, and I did a few episodes of his show with him and we picked people from his audience, went and, and you know, and, and did essentialism life makeovers. And suddenly within six months of that strategic trade-off, it was like a game change situation. Uh, and in, in the meantime, but completely separate to it, um, uh, the, the largest Hollywood talent agency asked me to come and speak on essentialism at their uh, annual retreat. And so because of that, I ended up having television agents, which is a big, challenging thing to do. And I didn't even try to do it. It just, it came, but because the strategic clarity was there, you could see the opportunity for what it was, rather than, again, having just missed it. Another keynote, go do it, it's done, it's transactional, move on to the next one. And so here we are a year later with very little effort Expanded, but an intent that had changed, and daily habits just filtered. So, so maybe not every day, but almost every day, just a little bit towards this, just thinking about what could we do next, what might the next little step be, and it's been really not more than that for this whole year. And here we are. Uh, we've got a production company now. Uh, we've got, you know, we're, we're building it. I mean, it's very early. So don't get me wrong. But it, to me, it's an amazing difference for one year uh, and, and where we would have been, where I would have been if I had just taken the, uh, the, the other more typical path. If it's true where you said there are two sorts of people, those that are lost and those that know they're lost, and you think you're in the second group, Welcome aboard the Busted is the Mojo radio show, mate, because we know we're lost. We have no clue where we're going, but you're, you're more than welcome to take a seat on our bus. <laughs> we're the proverbial rudderless ship. Oh, good company. <laughs> you're in great company, mate. Now, uh, just to finish this up, um, I have a sentence I'd like you to finish for me. And the reason is that I think a lot of people buy into the premise. I buy into it. I think a lot of people listening will go, I, need, I know I need this. Mm. 
finish this for me. You know you are an essentialist when dot, dot, dot. You know you're an essentialist when you have made the trade-off between something good for something better. That, that's really when it happens. The, the only other thing I would say, and I wish sounding a bit self-congratulatory this, this answer, but I'm sitting here right now. We moved home, got very clear about doing this, down into the LA area because of everything I just described with you about this trade-off a year ago. And we found this area that was just a very unusual area. It was built in the 1950s and it's like the whole world went on and no one told them. It's the most peaceful, quiet area I think maybe I've ever been to. I'm outside. I've got one of my children playing uh, over there on the trampoline. Can't really hear them from here. There's, there's just the stillness here. And I say it at the risk of being self-congratulatory because this moment was brought to you by an endless pursuit of what was essential. It mm. has been hard won, as all simplification is, as all, as all essentials are. They're hard won, day by day, bit by bit, but the, the transformation, when I think about where things are, the, sort of the genesis for the idea for essentialism was born and, and, and how things are now, and it's not over yet. I don't have this sense of, I have arrived, I have now, this is over. No, not at all. I don't have that sensation, but I do feel that there is a qualitative change and people will, will sense that and know that. So the, the daily trade-offs as you add up the cumulative impact will actually produce a completely different quality of life and life experience. It's interesting as well, Greg, you know, because when you write the book, then you have success as an author, you get speaking gigs, you pick up a television gig. I guess the danger is, as an essentialist, is that the more success you get, the more it leads to, it potentially could lead to a lack of focus because suddenly with the success comes more options, more potential gigs, potentially more opportunities that you could, you could go for. So those distractions due to success could actually pull you away from being an essentialist, couldn't it? Well, just so. And this is one of the reasons that I believe that over time living essentialism actually can become harder. Not, not, that, not because um, we've got worse at it, but because the opportunities that are coming to us don't just multiply in number, they increase in, in, in size, in interest. Just like I was describing with the book a moment ago, the next book is more appealing. So just say yes to that. And so, yes, in a sense, it gets harder because you're saying no to things today that a year ago or two years ago, five years ago, you definitely have said yes to, and for good reason. And so you have to keep on, you will plateau in your progress at the same level 
of selectivity that you settle with. So as you become more successful, as you make a higher contribution, you have to become more selective and more thoughtful in what you filter out and what you steer away from. And, and it's true. I mean, as soon as you stop doing that, you'll start to plateau in your progress because very simple mathematical problem, which is that the amount of available time and resources will be fully consumed with the opportunities at that level. And there won't be space to think about what the next level of contribution would look like. There just isn't even a room to think about it. So you just keep on doing everything at this level. And that is fine if you don't want to discover a higher point of contribution. It's no problem. Just keep doing it. But on the basis that most of us feel the desire to, to fulfill uh, the, the, the totality and measure of our, our potential and creation, because of that, I think we, we tend to hunger to be able to move forward to the next level. And I think, I think that's why, again, these practices that we're talking about today are so, are so vital. Because then you keep, even as you, even as the opportunities expand, you have a, a, um, a cadence of, of practices, the quarterly offsite, the daily practices of the, of the, of the checklist. This is the way that you can manage increasing opportunities that come your way. And interesting sensation to keep on trading off things that you used to go, yeah, that was my goal, was to have that opportunity. And then suddenly the opportunity comes and it's no longer the goal. But how important that is, and I feel like I'm, I'm now just listening, but, but I'll give you another story. It's not in the book, but this is an absolutely true story. I remember when I was 10 years old and my brother said to me, I mean, we must have just watched the Star Wars movie or something, and he just said to me, wouldn't it be the greatest thing ever to own a stormtrooper costume. And a combination, a combination of, you know, having just watched Star Wars, so being thrilled at, at how cool stormtroopers look, and that my older brother was saying, this is the thing to want. Fixed in my little 10-year-old mind, that goal as being worth pursuing. It's totally true. Last Halloween, my children, certainly one of them is especially going ho about Halloween and talks about it for weeks and months before. It's not, it's not quite like that for me. But nevertheless, I find myself before Halloween sitting in the Halloween shop, the, in, standing in a stormtrooper outfit. And I'll tell you this, they are not cheap. <laughs> that is, I'm talking like the real deal almost identical to what you'd see on the movie. And I'm, I'm looking in the mirror, dressed in this thing, thinking about whether I should buy it or not. And I think there's not one part of me, but one thing. What am I doing standing in this store, deciding whether to pay all this money for this thing? And I, I, it's, become, it's become a shorthand for my wife and I. And I will talk about it. She'll ask me even when I say, oh, what about this idea? And she'll say, is that a stormtrooper for you? And, and it's a good shorthand for, for 
not just the importance of setting goals, but the importance of unsetting goals, things that no longer matter, and try to take out of our heads and put them on, you know, put them on the table and look at them and go, are these goals right anymore? Because what we learn about goal setting is actually, as one of my Stanford professors once said, goals are the theory that works, which is to say that once you set a goal, your student can work on a lot of autopilot and pursuing that subconsciously. And so you may pursue something that, in fact, is absolutely outdated, no longer relevant, no longer what you want, no longer what is essential, no longer what your maturity would teach you you ought to do. And so it's, it's time to remove those stormtroopers and instead pursue what is now the updated vision of success, a new version of success that we've learned and developed over time. That's a great story, Greg. I, and I love that unsetting goals get rid of the stuff that's not important. That's, um, that's a really cool story. I don't think we've actually had a Stormtrooper stroke Star Wars story before in the show, Robert. We haven't, but I do want a, star, <laughs> I do want a Stormtrooper a uniform, i got to say. We could sit it on the you, couch over there next to Rosie. You'd be a portly, portly figure in a, star, in a Stormtrooper. Do they come think, in triple you? extra large, Greg? <laughs> you, know, you, know, you know what I've just achieved? I've achieved the, wrong, the, the, the entirely wrong objective, haven't I? You have. You've I've just yeah. all the new. Yeah, you just set, you just set a goal, not unset right. one. Yeah. You just set Classic. a goal. Yeah. <laughs> oh, of, that is so good. Instead of, instead of actually eliminating that desire, all these listeners now are going to be, yeah, yeah. now I know what I'm going to be following. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so unintended, that story. The Sydney costume <laughs> store is going, oh, that bloody Greg's been back on a, on, a, on a radio show again. Look at all these people, these look at all these portly stormtroopers coming in here. <laughs> 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 Gotta say though, Greg, it's still one of the greatest movies of all time, let's be honest. Totally is. Yeah. And bravo for the new team that managed to help us believe that uh, that Star Wars, the universe that we had imagined, is not lost forever. Yes. Actually though, perfect illustration of the paradox of success right there. You've yeah. got episodes yeah. where technically four, five and six, superb, with no no resources, very limited resources, very limited do but total focus on what was essential a powerful story simple story one hero one intent lots of big key uh obstacles so the whole thing was clear and simple then with massive resources almost unlimited resources was able to create one two and three but actually because of not being focused to the essential things that made us love those movies mm-hmm. we actually created a, a different universe at least that seems to be uh, uh, my observation. I think other people's too. So it's nice to realize you can come back to the, to the, to the feeling of that original universe. More gold. Well, I think that's a terrific way for us to wrap up, mate. This has been um, terrific as I knew it would be. I was very much looking forward to meeting you and chatting with you. If people want to know more about your work, Greg, the books, the shows, where would you send them to, mate? Listen, I think that, I think they're going to Greg, McEwen.com, you'll get uh, some of the updates there. If somebody's interested in just the latest raw thinking, um, I, uh, I I do have a Twitter account that I use. It's not a, not a, there's no bot on my uh, account, and so as I'm having these thoughts and exploring the next level of things, I do have conversations with people on there. So that's just at Gregory McEwen. 
uh, on Twitter. I think those are two places that conversation can continue. Thank you so much, mate. You've been very, very generous with your time. Really appreciate it. I'm a fan and, uh, and I look forward to seeing the next book, mate. Thank you ever so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Greg. May the force be with you. <laughs> <laughs> Amen to that. <laughs> the Mojo Radio Show. It's Rocktober. This is Tate Fletcher from Pirate Life Radio. You're listening to the Mojo Radio Show. Get it right for October. So the other part of Rocktober are the prizes, and we happen to have some prizes if you want them, folks. And this is Ridgy Didge. We have the Rocktober Rocket Fuel, which combines a few chilies. There's a little rocket fuel, a little bit of something-something, and it's yours if you do what these folks have done, which is you go, I don't, you go to iTunes, click on Ratings and Review. It will take you less than 60 seconds, I promise, as JDS Global has done and Tune Down Under, Bunny from Oz, Steve Lowry, which is Mark Lowry's brother, uh, have all done that in the last couple of weeks. They've all done that the last couple of weeks. Uh, guys, for those of you who have done it and gone into iTunes left us a review, hit us up on our email address. Just send us through your delivery address and we will ship this little... Uh, and we will ship the Rocktober Rocket Fuel, which is a little chilli sauce with a little bit of Carolina Reaper, a bit of ghostiness. It's got a bit of a tang, a bit of, bit of bite to it. It's yours. Leave us a review. That's all you have to do. Did you say JDS Down Under? JDS Global. JDS Global. I wonder if that's Jack Daniels. I wonder if they'll send us some samples. Jack Daniels. Jack Daniels uh, Special. Negative. Negative Ghost Rider. Now I'm going to show you how to make radio. For this, you'll need high fidelity stereophonic sound. And also a bit of music. And then, of course, Mojo Baby. Yeah! There's one I made earlier. I bumped into an old guest of ours last week. Who be that? A uh, good mate of mine, Ray Rabs Warren, Mr. Mr. Football. So for our international guest, Ray Rabs Warren was a former guest of the Mojo Radio Show probably sometime last year. He would be arguably the most recognisable voice in sport. He's a commentator. He's very well respected and very well loved. We, uh, we love our rabs. So it got me thinking about that interview and in particular one piece from it that I would really want my kids to take with them into their future if I was to die tomorrow. And it was rabs talking about wanting to become a race caller and how he went about it. We, we talked at the start about the dream you had as a six-year-old kid. Um, mm. Tell me, what, what part did your parents play in helping you achieve your dream? Oh, that's, that's a very good question because, and I'm not giving myself a rap here, but I think a lot of people tend to think that people like myself were born with a silver spoon in their mouth, and uh, mm. that's not the case with me, I can assure you. I... I was raised in a very small weatherboard cottage. Um, we shared bedrooms, me and my brother, and there was no no um, hot water. We didn't have a shower. We had a bath. It was an outside dunny. Um, we didn't have a washing machine. We we had a fuel stove, all of these things. I'm just rat, rat, rattling off a few things to you. But mm. at the end of the day, when I started rolling marbles down a slope, in the home, mum and dad 
maybe scratched their head and said, what is this bloke doing? But what they, what they did know was that every Saturday, they, having a gamble on the horses like threepence or sixpence, uh, we were listening in the kitchen. The, the kitchen was the hub of our life and we didn't go to the lounge room. We wouldn't go to the lounge room unless the people were enemies. That's where we entertained <laughs> our enemies, down in the lounge room. But in the kitchen, we did everything. And one of the main things in the kitchen was not only the fuel stove to warm your bum on, but the the valve radio was up there and Ken Howard was blaring through every Saturday. That was the only day we got races. Mm. And suddenly this kid is rolling marbles down a slope and trying to sound like Ken Howard. And as he gets a little bit older, he wants to get into radio and be, and be Ken Howard. Mm. As far as helping him become a race caller, rolling marbles, remembering their names according to colours, and how do we take this kid to the next level, which is to get him into radio. They played no other part than to encourage me by saying that was good, or when the family would come together for Christmas, uh, I think Dad would become the bookmaker and they'd be betting on the result of the marble races. So <laughs> that's the extent of the encouragement that I got. The, the, the poor buggers had no idea how to help me. In yeah, fact, yeah. I think at some stage they probably thought, what have we bred here? This is a lunatic, you know. You've got to love Rabs. And one thing that I heard just recently, which I think sums up why that's such a valuable lesson, this guy said motivation is not your friend. And it's funny when you say that in front of an audience, everyone sort of looks at you and goes, well, what are you talking about? The thing is that motivation goes away. You can play motivational pieces, you can listen to motivational clips, watch movies, and you feel jazzed up. But when it comes down to it, you still have to do the hard work. And what I really admire about Rabs, and I would, I would challenge anybody to think about this, how bad do you want something? How hungry are you to achieve the dream you've got in your mind? And are you prepared to sit on the ground with a bag of marbles and call them as a commentator over and over and over? And it wasn't a plan. It wasn't a set out strategy. It was just, I want this and I'm prepared to do whatever I have to do to get there. Motivation isn't your friend. And I think too often we think we look to all these other things for inspiration, but Rab's he summed it up in one go, mate. Grabbing a bag of marbles and starting right now, that, that's a great lesson to teach your kids. Absolutely. Get out and get amongst it. So let's um, <laughs> let's put a few of these things together. Let's tie it all together. Sitting on the ground, bag of marbles, doing the hard work, doing the dirty deeds, yeah. and hmm. you're doing it for nothing. There's no reward in that. You're not you're doing it because you're not getting anything out of it whatsoever. You're doing it done dirt cheap. So what if we said <laughs> to take us out, a bit of Akadaka, very Rocktober, Dirty Deeds, done dirt cheap? Uh, in your words, we're out.
Produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at The Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see garybertwhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out voodoosound.com.au and for the right voice, realtimecasting.com. Andrew Peter speaking. See you next time.